Welcome. This is podcast number five in our series on the Gospel of Mark. The title of this podcast is Little Ones and the Way of the Cross. Little Ones and the Way of the Cross. The section of the Gospel of Mark that we'll be moving into this coming Sunday is the the Way of the Cross section of Mark. It begins in chapter 8, verse 22, and runs throughout chapters 9 and 10, so ending at 10.52. Let me give you just some indication of some of the structures that are there. So the narrative shape in in this section of Mark's Gospel. We'll certainly be unpacking this a whole lot more come Sunday. Uh, First of all, the geography is a little different this time. Instead of a specific area like Galilee or the sea or something like that, what we have now is a road, the way. In Greek, the word for road is hodos, H-O-D-O-S. That shows up in English like an odometer. And hodos can mean either an actual physical road or a path, or it can mean a way, the way a way of life included, for example. And Mark means it both ways here. During this section, Jesus starts moving southward. We, we ended last time with Jesus in Caesarea Philippi, the, far, the farthest north within Israelite territory that he gets. Um, and that's where uh, he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And after that point, he starts heading southward. Uh, moving pretty steadily through Galilee down and on down through till he reaches the gates of Jerusalem. He's heading southward toward the cross. And as he's heading physically toward the cross, Jesus is teaching the way of the cross. Now it's less obvious when you're reading it in English translation because translators will, will render that word hodos in different ways. Sometimes it will be um, on the road or on the way or... Uh, or something like that. Um, And so because it's translated different ways, you'll miss the Greek word that shows up. But it's there several times. And the most interesting uh, example of that, I think, comes at the very end. At the very end of the series, you have blind Bartimaeus in Jericho. And after Jesus gives Bartimaeus his sight so that he sees clearly, as Mark says, and Bartimaeus followed Jesus on the way. What does that mean? Does it mean he followed Jesus on the road that Jesus was walking? Or does it mean that he followed Jesus on the way of the cross? And I think Mark's answer to that is yes. Both of them are what he means. Let me give you a a quick thumbnail sketch of the shape of this section, and then we'll move to talk about little ones. So first of all, the narrative shape of Mark 2, 8.22 to 10.52. The largest narrative bracket in this section is the stories of two blind men. We already saw the first one last time, uh, the story of the blind man in Bethsaida. It's the only miracle that we know of that took Jesus two shots to accomplish. The first touch happened, and the blind man saw people, but they were like trees moving around. And then Jesus touched him a second time, and he saw clearly. One of the things that's going to happen is now at the beginning of this new section, Peter will first begin to see clearly when, Jesus, when he confesses, you are the Christ. He gets it right. 
he sees. But then as, our, as today's section begins, Jesus will begin to, to, to tell his disciples that he's going to the cross, and Peter immediately does not see. He says, that can't happen to you. He rebukes Jesus, and Jesus has to set him straight. So here we have a, an actual blind man that takes two shots to be healed, followed by Peter, who is spiritually blind, and it takes two shots for him to finally see clearly. Then at the end of this whole series, you get blind Bartimaeus, who when he is, when he is healed, he sees clearly and he follows Jesus on the way. Mark intends these blind men as both literal blind, literal blind men, whom Jesus heals, and as emblems of the coming to see what Jesus is all about and what his way is all about. Uh, the first one doesn't see clearly, and at the end, Bartimaeus sees clearly and follows Jesus on the way. That's the largest bracket. Now, like the last major section, the, the crossings of the sea, was uh, that had three major sea crossing scenes that were kind of the focal pillars of that whole section. In a similar way now, in this section of Mark, we have three pillars. Scholars will call these his passion predictions, where Jesus predicts his sufferings, that's passion, his sufferings and death and resurrection. First one comes right away in chapter 8, verse 31, where Peter, for, for the first time, where Jesus, for the first time, begins to teach us that he's headed to the cross, and then will rise again after. Immediately, Peter blows it. He rebukes Jesus, and then that gives Jesus the opportunity to teach the way of the cross. So that's going to happen three times in this section. Three times Jesus will predict his sufferings and death. In 831, in, um, in 9, 30 to 32, and in 10, 32 to 34. Each time that's followed immediately by some of the disciples totally misunderstanding and walking in a different direction. The first time it's Peter, the second time it's all 12 disciples, and the third time it's James and John. So you get the three main leaders, Peter, James, and John, and all 12. Each time then following that, Jesus will take that as a teaching moment to teach the way of the cross. And so that pattern of proclaiming that his suffering and death are totally blowing it, and then Jesus teaching the way, that's the major structure for this section. And if we're not clear what his first teaching about the cross is in chapter 8, he's got two more chapters to fill that out and explain further what this is all about. Let me also mention that those that threefold pattern also sets up, it seems to me, three major movements of this part of Mark's gospel. I've, I've labeled them, number one, listen to him, 831 to 929. And the basic message here is that the word of the cross is hard to hear and calls for our attentive faith. Second movement, a child in their midst, chapter 9, verse 30, through chapter 10, verse 16. The centrality of little ones in Jesus' community. And the third section, seeking to save our own lives, 1017 to 1045, where Mark 
lays out two strategies for trying to secure our own lives, wealth and possessions on the one hand, power and position on another, and those flank the third prediction. At the end of that pattern, then, you get blind Bartimaeus, who now sees and follows Jesus on the way. It seems to me, finally, that there's also kind of a grand envelope structure where the first and third movements, which really focus on our letting go of ourselves, bracket that central movement, the one about the little ones. And those go together. The letting go is necessary if we're ever going to embrace and lift up the little ones and so create true community. That's where we're going on Sunday, and I invite you to be reading that section in advance and discovering what you discover, and we can share it together. For the rest of this podcast, then, I want to lift up that theme of little ones. That may seem like a kind of a demeaning term. I don't think Jesus means it that way. I get that term, first of all, from Mark 9, verse 42. Jesus says, If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. That's the first verse, by the way, of a kind of central section of the middle of the middle movement, where it's this is kind of the theme section, it seems to me, where Jesus teaches what this is all about. But that first opening, if any of you cause one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, to tr- if any of you trip up one of these little ones, little ones is in Greek hoi mikroi, micro. The, the micro people, the little ones, hoi mikroi. Um, that term, it's a little odd, um, but it's even more interesting that he says, these little ones. What's the antecedent of that, of that um, demonstrative pronoun? That is, who in the world are these little ones? Who are you talking about? For that, you have to back up to the previous passage. Who are these little ones? In context... What comes right before it is disciples trying to stop some other exorcist who's casting out demons in Jesus' name, but he doesn't belong to our group. He didn't go to the right seminary, or he's not one of us. And Jesus says, don't stop him, he's on our side. And then he goes on to say, anyone who even gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose their reward. So who are these little ones? To start with, it would seem to be that exorcist who's not one of us and anybody who gives you a cup of cold water because you bear my name. It may also go further to the, to the, verse, the passage before that where Jesus takes a child and places her in their midst and hugs her and says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives me, the one who sent me. These are the little ones. Now the entire middle movement of this section of Mark, 9.30 to 10.16, is filled with such little ones. The child in their midst. The exorcist who is not one of us. Those who offer a cup of cold water. 
anyone that we trip up or cause to stumble. Moving into chapter 10, in that society, divorced women, cast off women who had, once they were cast out of a marriage, they had no position and no rights. And then finally, at the end of the section, children again. Children are become kind of the emblem of the little ones, but it's clearly not limited to children. What we're talking about with the little ones is those who, are, who don't have the power, those who are more vulnerable, those who can be abused or taken advantage of. Uh, these are the ones that now Jesus is going to lift up as the center of his community. We'll spend some time on Sunday talking about that. What I'd like to do now, however, is to just a signal for you that this term, this, this idea of the little ones isn't brand new for Jesus. It has a rich Old Testament background, and it's deeply embedded in all of Scripture. In the Old Testament, you'll see it especially in two, two particular ways. The first one would be what I would call the vulnerable classes. There is a group of people that the Old Testament will allude to over and over and over again as ones whom you are not to abuse, you are not to take advantage of, and in fact you are to come alongside of and give them the assistance that they need. These would include the widow, the fatherless child, the resident alien, and then more in general, the poor. The widow and the fatherless child in ancient Israel, there was a clan system, and the clans and the households within those clans, the clans within a tribe, they took care of one another. When a woman um, left her husband's, her father's clan to marry her husband, she joined his clan, and that clan would look out for her and care for her. But if that husband died, she might fall through the cracks. She, she might fall through the, the, the security net of that society. Sometimes the clan would step up and care for her, and, but other times she might be totally without rights, and then she was ripe for abuse. She could be, she could have her living taken away, she could have her home taken away, any, she was, anyone could prey upon her. And so because she fell through the cracks of the system, God, God and the society lift her up for special care and for protection. The fatherless child, likewise. It's not just orphans in general, but particularly the ones who have lost their father, lost their protector figure. The third one in that is the resident alien. Folks who come from another country, the sojourners. They come from another country or another society, settle in Israel, and they can be participating fully in Israel's society, but they too have no clan to protect them. And so if there are those who are wont to prey upon them and abuse, abuse them and take advantage of them, they have no protectors. And so they are lifted up in Scripture as well. And finally, the poor in general. These are the vulnerable classes. I want to read for you just a few passages. In fact, this stuff is all over Scripture. And I'm certainly not going to be reading everything. But first of all, it's embedded in Israel's law. Some of the most ancient law code that we have, it seems, is the Book of the Covenant in Exodus. Uh, much of it is just 
law like you would expect for any particular society, but then you'll come across a passage like this. This is Exodus 22, beginning at verse 21. You shall not wrong or oppress a resident alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall not abuse any widow or orphan. If you do abuse them, when they cry out to me, I will surely heed their cry. My wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children orphans. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you shall not deal with them as a creditor. You shall not exact interest from them. If you take your neighbor's cloak in pawn as collateral, you shall restore it before the sun goes down. That may be your neighbor's only clothing to use as a cover. In what else shall the person sleep? And if your neighbor cries out to me, I will listen, for I am compassionate. Chapter 23, verse 9. You shall not oppress a resident alien. You know the heart of an alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. In the, in the law code of Leviticus, right, in the, right smack in the middle of all that purity stuff that we were looking at earlier, this is chapter 19 of Leviticus, verse 33. When an alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself. You were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Let me give you one more from Israel's law. This is from Deuteronomy. It would help if I were in Deuteronomy. I'm suddenly in Joshua. Here we go. Deuteronomy 24. You shall, verse 17. You shall not deprive a resident alien or an orphan of justice. You shall not take a widow's garment in pledge. Remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. When you reap your harvest of your field and forget a sheaf in the field, don't go back to get it. It shall be left for the alien, the orphan, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all your undertakings. Those are just a few samples of many within Israel's law. It's there in the prophets all over the prophetic literature. I'll just read you one of those. This is, from, this is from the prophet Isaiah, from Isaiah verse one, chapter 1. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. It's in, there in many of the prophets. It's also all over the Psalms. I think I'll skip that. There are enough examples so that you don't need to have me repeat everything over and over. But suffice it to say, it's all over in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Those are the vulnerable classes. God presents God's self as champion of these people. They have no next of kin, no one to care for them there in the world. But God is their champion, and God calls his people to champion them as well. The second Old Testament background is um, it was what's called the Anawim. 
this Hebrew word, A-N-A-W-I-M, anawim. It's one of the words for, um, it's, it's based off of one of the words for the poor. One of the main words for poor in the Old Testament is aniyim, A-N-I-Y-I-M, aniyim. The particular angle of poverty in this one is that it's people who are bent down, pressed down by poverty. That pressed downness is part of the picture. Um, this occurs especially all over the Psalms with God's special care for, for the poor, for the aniyim. Here's an example in Psalm 12, verse 5. God says, Because the poor are despoiled, because the needy groan, I will now rise up, says the Lord. I will place them in the safety for which they long. Here's another from Psalm 34, verse 6. This poor man cried. That's the writer. This poor man cried and was heard by the Lord and was saved from every trouble. Psalm 35, verse 10. O Lord, who is like you? You deliver the weak from those too strong for them, the weak and needy from those who despoil them. The word weak there is that word aniyim, the, those oppressed by poverty. You deliver them from those who are too strong from them and want to despoil them. Well, a variant of that same word, aniyim, is anawim, A-N-A-W-I-M. It's the same basic word of being bent down, but the focus now is fo focused on the humble or the humbled or the humiliated, the lowly, they may not be physically poor. They may not be economically poor, but they are crushed down. It will, it's translated in lots of different ways. Let me give you just a few examples of that as well. Psalm 9, verse 12. He who avenges blood, God who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Afflicted is that anawim, the crushed, the crushed down. Same psalm, verse chapter 9, verse 18. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the poor perish forever. The word poor there is the anawim, the pushed down. Psalm 37, verse 11. The meek, the humbled, the humiliated, shall inherit the land. That's, by the way, where Jesus gets his beatitude. The meek shall inherit the earth and delight themselves in prosperity. Psalm 76, verse 9, verses 8 and 9. From the heavens you uttered judgment, the earth feared and was still, when God rose up to establish judgment to save all the oppressed, all the crushed, all the anawim of the earth. That awareness, that uh, conviction that God is the champion of the poor and of the underdog runs through so much of scripture that it becomes, uh, people begin to think, begin to say, I want to be one of those. Not that I want to be poor, but I want to claim that kind of need for God. And so in the Psalms, sometimes the psalmist will say, Lord, I am poor and needy, when their problem isn't poverty at all, it's need of any kind. And so to know your need, to know that you need God, is to be what Jesus in the Beatitude calls poor in spirit.
Well, that's only the tip of the iceberg of so much Old Testament stuff about the vulnerable classes and about the anawim, the crushed, the poor. Behind all of that is Israel's basic first experience of life with God. Remember who they were. Of the 400 years they spent as slaves in Egypt, and God broke them out of there, set them free, and reshaped their lives in freedom. And that's why you may have heard it in so many of those law passages. You shall remember who you were in Egypt. Remember that you were the alien. Remember that you were poor. Remember that you were crushed. And you shall treat others who are in that position the way I treated you. So Israel's basic experience in being created out of the Exodus is a movement from crushed alien status to people of God. All of that rich background is there when Jesus talks about the, the mikroi, the little ones. The little ones are the anawim. The little ones are the vulnerable, the alien, the crushed, the pushed out, the ones who are ripe for the plucking. And just as God in the Old Testament champions those, so Jesus in the gospel becomes the champion of the of the little ones. So far in the Gospel of Mark, we've been seeing them already, but they haven't shown up under that term. All of those in chapters 1, 2, and 3, where Jesus was crossing lines for the sake of someone who was excluded by that line or was cut out on the other side, each of those, each of those folks that Jesus steps across for is one of the little ones. In chapters 7 and 8, when Jesus starts crossing, after he's been crossing the sea, and now he starts traveling outside Israel's territory, all of those foreigners that Jesus meets and touches are also little ones. Just this whole gospel, in fact, has been focusing on Jesus stepping across to where the little ones are. Now then, in this section of Mark, in the Way of the Cross section, we discover that these little ones form the very center of Jesus' community. They're right there in the heart of what it means to be Jesus' people. And now we can start to see why those, the first and third movements of this Way of the Cross, this letting go of ourselves, is going to be necessary if the little ones are truly going to be the center of the community. Obviously, that has uh, all kinds of stuff in it for us to consider as we think about today's world, as we think about our society in America today, and about where we stand. We must start to ask ourselves even now, who are the little ones in our community? Who are the little ones in American life today? Who are the little ones in today's world? I invite you to be mulling that. We're going to talk about it a good deal come Sunday. Thank you.